Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that uh, we are privileged to have your word in our language. Thank you that your word comes to us not as myths, not as made-up stories, but as indeed that which is inspired by you, God-breathed. So, Lord, as we look into your word today, we pray that our minds would be renewed. We pray that our thinking would be transformed. We pray that our view of you would be heightened and lifted up. And we pray that, Lord, our hearts would be stirred as we uh, once again reflect on the wonder of who you are as our God and the wonders of the gospel as we find them in the pages of Scripture. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Psalm 119. We're just going to read another couple of stanzas there as we're continuing to sort of use Psalm 119 as a jumping point on looking at the disciplines of grace, trying to help us become and develop healthy patterns of life as followers of Christ. We're looking at Psalm 119, right in the middle of your Bible there, beginning with verse 129, and we'll read down to 144. <clears throat> page 745 in your pew Bible. I think it's the bottom of the page there. Beginning with 129, we read that your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of the words of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your word. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. What comes to your mind when you hear the word marvel? I don't have in mind this morning comic books. That might be what some of you are thinking about. But to think of the word to marvel is to become filled with wonder. To become filled with amazed curiosity. To feel astonishment about something or someone. And so if you think about the word marvel in your experience of life, has anything, has anyone caused you to marvel recently? I know years ago, one of my marvel moments, or there's several marvel moments I experienced in my life, I'm sure a number of you can understand it and have recently, have also experienced it, 
is to witness the birth of each one of our kids. Those are moments of just marveling at the wonder of life. What, is, what else is on your list of marble moments? Is it that, that rare uh, solar eclipse or lunar eclipse that you witnessed one time? Is it a vivid rainbow you've seen or a spectacular sunset? Well, on the pages of Scripture, we find a long list of people who are filled with marveling. They're marveling at the display of God's truth, of God's power, and of God himself. Moses obviously was filled with wonder when he stood before a burning bush that was not being consumed, from which he heard the voice of God. And when Jesus in his earthly ministry was speaking to the crowds about him in his time of instruction, many of those listeners' hearts, we read in the Bible, they were filled with wonder at the gracious words that he spoke. When Jesus calmed those waves when he had, was with his disciples in that boat on the Sea of Galilee, he calms the waves and he stills the winds. Merely by uttering a verbal command, we read the response of his disciples in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 8. They marveled and they said, What manner of man is this that the winds and waves obey him? You see, the psalm, the writer of Psalm 119, as we began there in verse 129, he marveled at the word of God. He says there in verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. The word there actually literally is, they are wonders. He's filled with astonishment and amazement. Why? Because the more he reads them, the more that he is delving into the wonders of the pages of Scripture, he is obviously being reminded of the author of these pages, and that is God himself. God himself is wonderful. His character is perfect in every way. His deeds are beyond comprehension. It is God himself who performs wonders. Isn't it sad that sometimes we lose our sense of wonder? The older we get, the more sophisticated we get. I must confess, I enjoy being around small children for a period of time, not for a long period of time, but for a period of time, I enjoy being with small children because children are naturally curious. They are naturally inquisitive. I love that about them. Little things to a kid becomes a big deal. And so in the early years of a child, you, they will carefully inspect something. They will become fascinated with things that most adults are like, ho-hum, I mean, come on. You know, the kid will go out in the backyard and look, look at this, look at this dirt, you know, look at this piece of grass, look at this flower, look at this bug. You know, they become fascinated with that stuff. They're filled with wonder. But most of us outgrow those patterns over time. And I would say, sadly enough, many of us in our everyday life, we have come to the point where we don't really have a great sense of appreciation and consideration of God and His ways. We've lost a sense of wonder about God. It's easy to overlook the glories of God's creation. It's easy to overlook the glories of, of God's character and God's thoughts. And yet God has wired us to be people who are filled with wonder and worship. We are wired to worship. 
And God has tuned our hearts from birth to be awed by him and to be amazed by him. That's what we read about in Romans 1. But the sad reality is that oftentimes we're awed by something else. Someone else has taken our hearts captive and we become very much worshiping other things, other parts of the creation. And this morning I want us to just take some time to think about this concept of how the Word of God can help us fulfill one of the ways in which God has called us to be worshipers of Him and to think about that with just two overarching principles from Psalm 119. First of all, number one, the Scriptures reveal God and His worthiness to be worshipped. The Scriptures reveal God and His worthiness to be worshipped. Here the psalmist, as he's reading the Word of God, he becomes again marveling at the glories of God and His character. He doesn't just read about God and become unmoved by that. He thinks and ponders about that. So look at verse 68 of Psalm 119. 68. He says, God, you are good. And you do good. Then verse 90. We read the psalmist saying, Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You did establish the earth and it stands. He thinks about God's faithfulness and how God puts things in motion. How about 137? Psalm, 1, Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. And then 156, Psalm 156, sorry, one, verse 156. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Now, when the psalmist is na naming these aspects about God, he doesn't list them as an academic exercise. Okay, tick off from your mind the things that you know are true about God. No, he doesn't do it that way. He doesn't just recite them as one recites multiplication tables. He's, his understanding about God has been shaped and defined by the words of Scripture. And, and that, that uh, way it's been refined and the way it's which has impacted him, it moves him to marvel. It moves him to, to uh, uh, his understanding about God moves him to worship. He actually turns then and begins to think about God and lift his heart to him and begin to think of his worthiness. I would dare say that a rough diamond, when it's taken out of the ground, is not a very impressive stone. How many of you have ever seen an uncut diamond? It's no big deal. It looks like a piece of quartz. You know, it's nothing. Um, but if you take that diamond and you carefully, in the hands of a skilled jeweler, a diamond cutter, he cuts different facets of that stone. And he will create a stone in which it will reflect light in such a way at times that that diamond will appear as if it's glistening or it's actually sparkling, has its own internal light, which it doesn't, but it's just reflecting the light in a very effective way. I would dare say that God does not need to have any kind of modification. God doesn't need to be improved upon to be recognized as worthy. God's attributes, like that of a fine carefully carved diamond provide endless reasons that we can marvel about him and, and be filled with a sense of awe and amazement about him. 
In your notes, I've given you a definition about worship from Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, which I commend to you. It's an excellent book. Donald Whitney writes this, To worship God is to ascribe the proper worth to God, to magnify his worthiness of praise, approaching and addressing him as worthy. More simply, Donald Whitney says, Worship is, worshiping is focusing on and responding to God. And when the scriptures provide a glimpse of heaven, what is the response of those people that we hear about? And as we get a little bit of an open of the, pull the curtain back and say, wonder what heaven's going to be like. And a few occasions in which we have that kind of insight in the word of God, particularly early parts of Revelation, the people there in the presence of God do what? They assume a low position. They are bowing down with their faces low to the ground. They collectively celebrate the worthiness of God, not only in songs, which we've just done this morning, but also in affirmations. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. They also say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. They repeat things that are true about God. They say them together. And I would dare say to you that God delights to be honored like that. He delights to be honored for his glory and his greatness. And when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Moses is reminding the people of God what God intends for them to do. He's trying to help them understand here's the right ways in which you want to live in relationship to this God who has saved you and redeemed you and taken you out of captivity. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, You shall fear or revere the Lord your God, and you shall worship him. You shall worship him. God expects worship of him. So much so that when Jesus encounters the woman at the well and she and he are talking about just water, Jesus turns the conversation to spiritual matters and she becomes sort of caught up in saying, oh yeah, well we like to go up in the particular place where I live near here and that's the place where we worship and you folks have some temple down in Jerusalem and she gets sidetracked and all those things. Listen to what Jesus says to her. He says to the woman in the well, those who worship in spirit and in truth, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, it's perfectly reasonable, it's logical that God would desire those who are made in his image to inwardly appreciate his worthiness. That we don't just go through the motions of just saying things, but it's something that is deeply impacting us on the inside. And therefore, it is something that our hearts are, have an attitude toward God that's consistent with the Scriptures. As we think about the truth of who God is, our hearts are moved to respond to Him appropriately, saying, You are worthy of praise and adoration and thanks and honor. It's not just enough to merely go to a holy place or a place that's designated for worship. It's not enough to merely uh, follow some sort of rituals on the outside, performing all those things. Many people do those all the time, and they do them very carefully. But that's not necessarily worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
It's amazing how the Bible talks about how worship becomes quite practical in light of the gospel. I've been thinking about the fact that worshiping in spirit and in truth, if I really understand in truth of who God is and what God has done for me in the gospel, if I really understand the mercies of God shown to me an undeserving sinner that God himself has taken upon me my sin and in, in place of that I receive the righteousness of God of Christ by faith and therefore that I've also received the Spirit of God. I've been adopted as Christ's child. Therefore, I've learned the fact that salvation does not depend on my effort, but it depends on God's mercy. That kind of reflection, that kind of wonder, being filled with a sense of marveling at the gospel does what? It leads me to respond in such a way. It's not just an inner attitude. It's an inner attitude that then it begins to express itself by very practical ways of living. Turn to me, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, real quickly here. I told you I was going to jump from Psalm 119. Well, I am. Romans 12, 1. Very significant bridge, verbal bridge is this 12, 1. He has jam-packed all sorts of thoughts about the gospel in explaining why we need the gospel, what the gospel really is, How's the gospel applied and how, how can we have a significant change in our hearts because the Holy Spirit is given to us and how do we live a new way and how does all this impact what God's program is with Israel? All these things are now been dealt with. And then he comes to 12.1. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God in the gospel, to do what? To present to God all sorts of gifts and money and property, to, to give and purchase indulgences? No, it doesn't say that. To present our bodies. There's no platonic thought here at all. This is very Christian understanding of the human body as something that God is interested in, God values. To present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice which is well-pleasing to God. It also is, he says, that kind of a, a, a response to God of presenting your body to him as a living holy sacrifice is a spiritual service of worship. That's the way to properly respond to God in worship, is to say, okay, Lord, here I am. These hands now are designed to worship you. These ears now are designed to worship you. These lips are now designed to worship you. And to build and edify, build up and edify other people. And so the idea of presenting myself to God is very reasonable, very logical, very appropriate to do. To offer unto God myself. That means it brings worship down into the level of what? The workplace is a place that I can worship God. My home is a place where I can be worshiping God, and I'm called to worship God. You mean when I do mundane things? like laundry, cleaning the bathroom, finishing the report that's due on the 20th of the month. When I, when I finish my report and turn it in in English, these things are things I can do as a means of worshiping God? Yes! They can if my response is a heart response that's marveling at the wonders of the gospel. Yes! The answer is yes and amen. The problem is that we've oftentimes 
Our hearts are not moved by the word of God. We're not thinking about God. We're not engaging with our minds about the truth of who God is and the wonders of the gospel. And we just go on with life and we just forget about the whole point of giving ourselves to God every day as a living sacrifice. And so that's why Paul goes on to say then what? Not only is our bodies presented to God as part of our worship, but our minds need to be transformed. Well, how do you make a transformed mind? Interesting word he uses here. Same word he uses for metamorphosis, which was also used of Jesus' body being transfigured, is to have our minds transformed in the way in which we think. So that we're not following the values of the world system, which is operating as if God does not exist. We're looking to say, no, God is the center of all things, and therefore I need to think about him as being the one that I uh, see his hand in everything and everything has to do with his glory and I'm motivated now to serve him in all that I do and I want to follow his will in the situations I'm in in life. It becomes a very practical way of seeing worship touching on every aspect of my life. That's a whole nother sermon. I could easily expand on that, but I would admonish you to give more time to unpacking Romans 12, 1, and think about what it means to be in the Word and have the Word impacting you such that it translates into how you live your everyday life and worshiping God where you, where you live every day. You say, well, that sounds like a big, heavy load to bear around. You sound like you're laying a heavy burden on me that I've got to be now focused on this idea of the duty of giving myself to God every day. And it just sounds like such a, that's a lot to be asking of somebody. So that begs the question next, how does the gospel help us to worship God not merely out of duty, but out of delight? And on this point, I'm going to give credit to John Piper, who I think had a very helpful suggestion. And so he goes on to explain this. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. You can't just do it merely by acts of duty. It must be done by spontaneous affections that rise out of the heart. So here's an analogy he makes. Consider it's the day of your wedding anniversary. I'm thankful to say that my wife and I just celebrated our 35th. Now suppose I come home, I did come home on that day, and I come in the door and I have in my hands long stem roses, at least a dozen of them, and I present them to her. She greets me at the door. and She says, oh, they're so lovely. Thank you so much. You're such a wonderful husband. I'm like, oh, I like hearing that. But then suppose I just rain on the moment. And I begin to say, oh, honey, I said, listen, don't mention it. It's my duty. Uh, I don't think so. I just ruined the moment. Because as Piper says, dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. Dutiful roses? The point is, if I'm not moved by spontaneous affection for my wife, as a person, the roses do not really honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They're very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle affection in my heart. 
So the real duty then of worship is not merely the outward duty to say or do the liturgy, to go through the motions of saying, well, I'm going to do this, i got to do this, this is the next thing I need, ought, ought to be doing, I ought to be doing. See, catch the word duty there. The first duty of worship then is what? Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 4. You ought to write that verse down. Delight yourself in the Lord. Reason this is a real duty of worship is because it honors God. It's not just a performance. It's not just a ritual. If I take my wife out for an evening on her anniversary and she asks me, why are you doing this, dear? The answer that honors her most is it's because nothing else makes me happier tonight than to be with you. Right? Or to say it's my duty to take you out on our anniversary is to dishonor her. But to say it's my joy is to honor her. To say I value you. I value us. And Piper says, worship that honors God is not primarily motivated by duty, but it overflows out of a heart of joy. And some of you are saying, I want that heart of joy. I feel like I don't have, my well is empty. There's not much joy coming out of there. I don't feel like my worship is much of a spontaneous enjoying and delighting in God. It's something I do out of duty. That leads me to my second point. Point number two, the scriptures reveal God's image bearer's pattern of worship. The pattern of worship is revealed to us in scripture. And first of all, and I'm not going to spend much time on this at all, letter A, it's private. There's private worship. There's individual worship is something that God expects is the pattern of life for his people. That when we what is going to help stoke the fires of passionate, joyous worship of God? Well, it's going to be consistent, humble, heartfelt, spirit-led reading of the Scriptures. Pondering and thinking and pouring over the Word of God. Getting to know God. Getting to know God's ways. Discovering, appreciating the many reasons for God's worthiness, which are to be found in reflecting upon God's grace and love and mercy that are displayed in the person of Christ, over and over and over again, but culminating in his giving of his life and death on that cross and his resurrection from the grave for us. See, the psalmist had no problem with this kind of private reflection and pondering about God in his own private time, on his own. In his own private worship time, his emotions were kindled as he poured over the Bible Listen to Psalm 63. The psalmist writes this. Psalm 63. Because your loving kindness, he's talking to the Lord, is better than life. He says, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. At the time in which those words were written, it was very, very rare to have rich, banquet kind of foods that he was alluding to there. You would rarely have an occasion in which you have a bring out the best of the best of the best. He was saying that the satisfaction that he receives from God's covenant love 
is similar to the satisfaction that he enjoyed on that rare occasion when he is a person who's longing for those tasty, rich, special occasion foods. For some of us, like a campfire, we haven't tended the campfire for a while in our hearts in terms of our affections toward God, and we've not spent much time in the Word. We haven't added a log to the fire in quite a while to think about and ponder and fill our minds with the wonders of God and His ways and His person, His character. And so therefore, there comes a sense in which being in the Word and praying and asking God to make the Word come alive to us so that we might know the God is one way which privately we can, we can engage in having worship that's filled with joy and delight. Well, I want to move on to the second point here because I think in some ways what I'm talking about now is similar to what I talked about last week. So rather than repeat myself, I want to give some attention now to corporate or public worship. There's private worship and let her be there's public worship together corporately with the people of God. It's interesting to notice that Psalm 119 is primarily the reflection of one person in his devotion to God and his wonder over the word of God. But it's, you can't escape the fact that there are, he, he, he gives the understanding that he's a part of a group of people who similarly share those things together. Verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 119, he says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do not, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. He sees himself as part of a group. Verse 63 of Psalm 119, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Now, what's implied here in Psalm 119 is very explicit in other parts of the Scripture, and that is what? Those who privately worship God day to day, throughout the days of the week, are urged to what? Corporately join together with other believers, other worshipers of God, who gather together in the same locality, same physical location, and they focus on God and they respond appropriately to Him in corporate worship. The Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, made it very clear that there were to be three occasions in which the people of God were to make their way up to Jerusalem and participate in the temple celebrations of particular festivals and feasts that were required and encouraged and promoted. And they were to gather together to make that kind of corporate celebration of God and His ways and His goodness and His grace. And in the New Covenant, we come to verses like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Maybe you want to make your way there and read that familiar text in which the call for believers is to maintain this pattern of corporate worship. We read there, Let us not forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, some people draw the wrong assumption, but they nonetheless assume that private worship throughout the week, if that's the pattern of my week in my life, then therefore I'm exempted from public worship. 
because I've been worshiping all week. I don't need to gather with any body of Christ in a local church. I'll just continue to worship on my own, which I seem to be doing very well at as a singular, singular person. But according to Hebrews 10, that's not God's will. <laughs> Other people assume also that if they faithfully and consistently attend the weekly corporate worship service, that they are exempted from the day-to-day worship of God in their own little private worship. That's not true. We are not to choose one or the other. One or the other. It is both and. And there's an overlap, obviously, between these two realms of worship, the public and the private. They really have, obviously, a lot of bearing on the other, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think? What happens in the one sphere invariably is going to impact what happens in the other sphere. So that's why Donald Whitney raises the question, can we expect the flames of our worship of God to burn brightly on the Lord's Day when they barely flicker for Him in secret on other days? Isn't it because we do not worship well in private that our corporate worship experience often dissatisfies us? Those are probing questions. And so I want to just take a few moments in my concluding thoughts here to zero this in on what are some benefits? What are the benefits of corporate public worship? When the people of God come and they gather week after week, what are the benefits of that? As Whitney reminds us, some elements of worship cannot be experienced in private worship. They cannot be experienced by watching someone else doing corporate worship together. That is, watching a TV ministry, sitting at home, and that's all you ever do is just watch people who worship and being broadcast to you. No, but some graces and some blessing God gives only in meeting together with other believers. Here's one. Number one, isn't it true that there are times when we gather for corporate worship on the Lord's Day that honestly speaking, we come in and we have and are experiencing a spiritual fog that's enveloping our heart. We just feel like our zeal for God has just dissipated. Our desire for God has dwindled down like a campfire that's been burning for a long time. But I find that many a time when you come to a corporate worship service and you're sort of dragging in your spirit. Many times we have regained our bearings. We've been greatly helped in that time of corporate worship. And one of the biblical examples I would cite is this, is to read Psalm 73 sometime, where the psalmist in very honest, humble confession says, you know, at one time I was in a bad place in terms of my thought life and in my heart attitudes. He says, because I was looking around, I was trying my best to do things that I thought were honoring to God. I kept my heart pure. I'm, I'm, I'm following all the things that God has encouraged me to discipline, the disciplines of grace in my life. And I'm looking around and I'm looking at how well off all the people who are pagans, people who don't follow God and who are unbelievers, their lives look so much easier and less complicated and much more blessed than mine. And he was struggling. His heart was embittered. He admitted that he has a senseless and ignorant person when it comes to spiritual insights. And he's envious of these people. 
And then what does it say? What changed him? What got him out of the funk and the fog of where his heart had, had landed? The answer, when I gathered in the congregation. When I came together with other believers, when I went into the public worship of God, it was there that I realized and gained once again a proper perspective and began to understand exactly what God's ways are and how God will deal with these people. And I began to realize my heart was renewed by being in that kind of setting. Isn't that true of you? Haven't you seen that in your life? I've sure seen it in mine. Number two, another benefit is the reminder that we are not alone in following Jesus. I realize that for some of us, we might have relatives that we live with who are unbelievers. Some of us work with many challenging, difficult unbelievers. Some of us have uh, neighbors that are difficult to deal with who are unbelievers. And so we live in a world in which we find ourselves swimming upstream and we've got lots of challenges and difficulties and people who don't look very favorably toward our allegiance to Christ. But when we gather with the people of God in a local assembly, we are reminded that we're not alone, that we're part of a, a community of faith. And certainly one person had gotten to the point where he was very much discouraged, very much ready to quit, very much ready to throw in the towel and say, you know, look, I've done all this hard work for God. I have labored. I have really served him. I have given of myself. I've taken a courageous stand. It's Elijah. And he did indeed do all those things. But soon thereafter, he got very discouraged. And he says, I alone am left. All this laboring. And here I am. I'm the only one hanging on. Everybody else is compromised. Everyone else is thrown in the towel. They've gone to the other side and become Baal worshipers. If you read 1 Kings 19, you'll read how God dealt with Elijah and reminded him what? Listen, there are 7,000 that are still left in Israel who have not bent their knee to worship Baal. You're not alone. Indeed, when you think about how blessed we are to become a part of a community, we learn how wonderful it is to know there are others who share similar struggles, others who share similar um, concern about where we are and who can pray for us and lift us up and who are singing to us encouraging words that we need to hear about God and about God's faithfulness and God's promises. Indeed, we find ourselves reminded of the bigger picture. We're not alone. Number three. I would suggest to you that corporate worship plays an indispensable role in our sanctification, in becoming more like Christ over a period of time. Because God, at times, by His Spirit, applies the Word of God and helps to comfort us through the ministry of other people in the context of corporate worship. For example, those who lead in prayer, oftentimes those prayers can be something that wow, I really needed to think, that, think about that prayer and thankful that somebody prayed for me today and lifted up that concern for me. You don't get that when you're all alone, worshiping God. Sometimes there are sermons that will unpack and get, deal with an issue or a concern or a reminder and that comes to you as a way of giving you a, 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 a sort of a medicine for your soul for that day as you apply the scriptures to your situation. It's the lyrics of songs that we sing together that can be so helpful to us. I know years ago, not years ago, 
um, I think it was Tim that introduced the song, at least I heard it recently through him, uh, when he was here, I need you, oh, I need you. Boy, sometimes that'll just pop into my head when I realize, Lord, I do need you. My thoughts are so discouraged right now. My thoughts are so focused on what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with me and what's wrong with everything else. I need you. Oh, I need you. And start singing that song. That's a very helpful ministry that comes as we gather together. Fourth and then fifth. We have just two more here. Hang on here. Another point I'd like to suggest, the benefits of corporate worship is we gained heightened experience of worship in the corporate context. That is, our awe can be accentuated, our adoration can be increased, our joy can be doubled when we worship Jesus together with other believers. Someone said the old Swedish proverb says, a shared joy is a doubled joy. So in corporate worship, we gain the accentuated joy of deeper, richer, greater adoration and awe since our delight in Jesus expands as we magnify him with other people. That's so true. When people have expressed their thankfulness, when we hear someone give a testimony, when we have opportunities to be reminded of what God is doing in other people's lives, it lifts our hearts up as well. Those are some helpful thoughts from David Mathis in his book that he's recently come out with uh, dealing with the grace of discipline. But let me just list one more. Do you ever realize that the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism are corporate means by which the gospel is proclaimed in very visual ways, in very tactile ways in which we taste and we handle something and we're forced to think once again of the wonders of God's grace, the fact that we are indeed given a gift that we don't deserve, a status that we never did earn, and that we are in that situation based on what Christ did for us, that we had our sins washed away, that we are not self-made people. We are people who have been made and new creations by the grace of God. And when you collect, collectively celebrate that as the people of God, it's not something you do at home alone. And therefore, it's all the more beneficial for us as the people of God to celebrate in community. Which again begs the question, are you a member? Have you identified yourself as someone who says, I claim and give a uh, credible testimony of my faith in Jesus Christ and I have made that testimony, therefore I have entered into a local body of believers, and therefore they are holding me accountable to that testimony, not as a perfect person, but as someone who is following Scripture, showing that I love Christ, doing in such a way that we serve and give evidence of our faith to Christ together in community. It is indeed a true privilege. I thank God for you, my church family, the privilege of being together with you week after week. These times truly are precious to me. I hope they are to you. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the joys of knowing you, the joys of reflecting upon you, being filled with wonder, amazement, to marvel at you and your ways, 
Lord, for some people here today, maybe they just are clueless about what we're talking about. They've never had their hearts stirred with a sense of wonder and astonishment, being awe of you, that the mercies that we talk about, the mercies of God in Romans 12, 1, they don't, those are just vague thoughts to them. They really don't understand the mercies that you've shown to them in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them as the saving